0: What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I have Susie Batiste, founder and CEO of Poopery, as well as the brand new company Supernatural. Susie, welcome. You're in Texas now, right?
1: I'm in Texas. I have my boots on today too, so it's good.
0: (laughs) It seems like a very appropriate thing to do Uh, in Texas. I don't always do this, but I want to be very transparent about my agenda in interviewing you today because uh, when I do talks and, and some writing, there are a handful of companies that I constantly refer to where they have visible leaders who take creative risks to whom creativity is essential, not just a little department somewhere and not something that you just outsource. Uh, And you're now building a second company by taking risks. You've had a lifetime of taking risks and putting creativity at the heart of what you do with many successful products and videos and so on and so forth. And what I'm hoping is that people who either work in marketing or advertising can share what you've done and how you've done it. And maybe even this interview with people who are dismissive of creativity and see it as this words and pictures Stuff that some eccentric people do, but that's not really very essential. So that's my that's my goal with this. Susie, are you, are you on board?
1: I'm so on board. My favorite <laughs> subject.
0: <laughs> Why do you put such? Essential focus on creativity in business. Where did that come from?
1: You know, I'm not sure. Um, a few times I've, I have some suspicions. Though I grew up in Arkansas, really without a lot of resources. You know, we were probably poor. You know, where we? Yeah, we were. We were poor. So if you look on the economic scale, we weren't making much money. And I always had to make things, Mark. So it wasn't even an option for me to go to the store. So I've always been naturally resourceful and creative. But it was out of of a survival mechanism. And creativity for me has always been a way out. Because I didn't do well in school, I was one of those children I probably would do really well in alternative school these days, but growing up in a small town in Arkansas, that wasn't available to me. So instead of, you know, doing really good in schoolwork, what I really realized is that I could use my creativity and I could impress. So I think that's where the core skills for me, it came in is like, that's how I solve problems. I operate mostly on my right brain, not particularly my left. <laughs> and I do my left, of course, I'm very smart in business, but that's not my go-to. My go-to is there's a creative solution out here. And it's just been that way in my body. My entire life, it's just what I do. I normally think out of the box. Let's do something crazy. I, I'm not a fan of history. I love people that love history, and if I go to historical site, I'll, I'll visit it. But I would rather find out about the new horizon. So I think those gut impulses were always problem solving to me, and always wanting to look into the future to create something different. A little bit of a rebellious nature.
0: Yeah, it's funny. When I do these interviews, I take notes, and I think there are there are five little points that I wrote down, themes that came up, and what you're talking about that I think. Are pretty interesting first principles, and many people who would identify with, with what you're saying would identify with these first principles. The first is creativity as, as a means of survival. Do you mean that in a in a practical sense or possibly also in a, a spiritual sense?
1: I mean it as both. You know, I've I've had myself in a lot of tight spots. And, um, let's just put it down practical, like in our business, if we're having a business problem, you know, if we have, let's say that we're, you know, $4 million behind in, you know, shipments, which has happened to us once in our company, you know, we can do all the tactical basic things you would do. Okay. Contact the suppliers, do all this, you know, there's a fire drill that you do, but really when you look at it, there's a bigger issue going on. I like to step back. I bring a group of people into the room and I say, we have an issue and there's a really creative solution here. What is that? And we all just start firing ideas and you never know what's going to come out of that. Always, I always tell everyone in my company, there's not a single job in this company that is not a creative position. Sometimes people laugh, go, oh, creative finances. I said, really, you know what? It is creative. We don't do anything illegal, but I've built a company that's debt free. And we've never had a loan, and I don't have any investors. So you have to be very creative with your resources, right? It's like, should we buy that new bottles? How are we betting? You know, those could be looked at as business problems and business solutions, but I look at them as creativity. It's like, okay, if we take this and we take this bottle, and let's get these raw goods and let's create this package, you know, and then we can sell that to produce some income to make this. Like all of that is creative strategy to me. It's no different than designing a, a marketing campaign.
0: I agree. I agree. So not only was creativity a means of survival for you and a way out, But also the way that you're talking, it's a default idea in your life and in your company. And it's where you start. And to your point earlier, your starting point is actually, let's start crazy. And I think it's way easier to start crazy than it is to start with dull, boringness and a disdain for creativity and the crazy. It's so hard to, you can't get out of that. You can't change that culture. And the idea of creativity as a default need and expectation of everyone in a business is such a powerful idea when people have joined you from other other places does it take them a while to adjust to the fact that they need to bring their brains to all meetings to, to behave like this
1: well they have to bring their brains but more importantly i don't want them to bring their guts as well, you know, we operate a lot off of intuition. If something doesn't feel right, you'll hear in our meetings, like "Hold on, something feels off," and we'll say, "Hold on, what are you talking about here?" So, I want you to bring your brain and your gut to the meetings. Um, but yeah, sometimes people, when they first come in, they're you know they'll just sit in a meeting, and I'll say, you know, I'll pull them aside and say, "Listen, the, the way you're going to survive here is by jumping in. Doesn't matter what the idea is, crazy." not crazy you've got to start speaking and you have to start being in the room because you will not make it you know we're we're the opposite from the culture of where you've got to you know cover your ass and not say anything and every idea has to be perfectly pitched we're the exact opposite get messy get sloppy give us wild crazy ideas don't be upset if somebody doesn't like it I get kicked off the island all the time it doesn't matter we're looking for the best idea and we're not it doesn't matter who that comes from mm-hmm. because that idea that you put into the room could bounce someone else off another idea and another idea and another idea and that's the way great programs and solutions are created mm-hmm. in my experience it's not particularly from one person
0: why do you think that that's such an unusual set of Thoughts. I'm sure you've worked with consultants and met with businesses that expect you to behave in a certain way and you don't. Why is what you're talking about so unusual?
1: I don't know. You know, I was, I've was. i had a couple of friends ask me to come into their businesses and one, they needed some new ideas. So I get into the room, nobody says anything. I said, okay, how, how, let's, let's just start riffing. You know, do you have any ideas? What are you even working on? Like I'm trying to extract data, nobody's talking. And finally, the owner of the company says, you know, one of my friends says, you know what, I think I need to leave the room. And I was like, really? He said, yeah, I think I need to leave the room for ideas to come out. I thought that was so bizarre. And what I realized is that that's a culture where the person in charge is invested in their idea being the right idea or in somebody not being used to being able to share their ideas or their ideas are always getting shot down. And I I, I was shocked. I I haven't been in a culture like that in a long time. And people tell me that that's the way a lot of cultures are. Mm -hmm. So we're exactly the opposite. I think it's because in corporate America, you know, the, the number one strategy you have to have as a survival skill is to cover your ass. Um, we're breaking out of that now. That's the reason we have so many startups, which I love, and so many entrepreneurial businesses is we're kind of saying, you know, screw that. Let's do it differently. Well, doing it differently means not bringing all those corporate strategies and tactics into the smaller business.
0: You enter a room with that history, that reputation, and a sense of power do you try to bring everyone into, a, I guess, a King Arthur and the Roundtable type of situation where everyone's equal might not be the right word, but at least honored and respected? And, and what are your t- techniques for that? How do you break down those awkward silences?
1: Well, we don't have those in our company. But what I did then is I just said, listen, I said, all ideas are equal here. We really, and I explained to them my process. said so, so my process is we have to throw a bunch of things into the middle of the room and and kind of get our juices flowing, okay, our creative juices flowing. Once we do that, we can start picking one or two that we kind of like to start riffing on it even further, but at the beginning, we just need to kind of get some ideas, and so they slowly started – putting ideas out, you know, and then I could see that they would get excited when they shared an idea. I'm like, okay, that's great. And does anybody else have anything? Okay, this. So I just sort of started extracting things from them. And I would say, okay, which ones do we like to riff off of here? You know, where did you feel excited? I noticed we were excited about one, two, and three. Do we also feel excited about that? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, okay, let's explore those. So I was just guiding people and what do you have? So I would just narrow them down into a funnel, right? It's like, okay, now ideas about this idea, you know, how could we go off that? How could we expand on this idea? How do you see this playing out? And it really was an extraction process. I don't know how they do it beyond me being there. I think it starts at the top with management, not, you know, for me, I have the culture, my team knows the worst thing you can do on my team is be a brown noser. Like, it's just, that I can't stand that. I like the people that go, I don't like that idea. I'm like, okay, why? What do you got? What do you have that's better? That's just the culture I've built here. So Mm -hmm. in our room, it doesn't matter whether you're VP. It doesn't matter whether you're the CEO, you're the founder. They know that we value the idea. We don't Mm -hmm. care who it comes from. And also it's not one person's idea. It becomes a starting point for us all to create off of. So we have an ownership, which in the room, the idea is the God or the king. And we are determined to come out with one at least one singular idea that we have all agreed on and we've all worked on. So that way nobody feels left out.
0: There's a few interesting beliefs there. One is that everything starts something and everything can lead somewhere. There's also what I I think when you're coaching people around, I don't like it. Someone's not saying, I don't like you. They're saying, I don't like the idea that you shared. And that's not a personal criticism of you. But I'm also going to be responsible enough to put down my own reasons why, knowing those reasons could also get rejected or lead somewhere completely new, right?
1: Exactly. It's just an idea. That's another thing is we take it so personal. You know, these ideas aren't ours. They're just, we're channeling through it. You know, sometimes we wake up at 3am. Sometimes I sit in a room and I don't have a single idea. Sometimes I have a hundred. You know, I really can't control that. That's why we put a lot of people together, but it's the idea that is the king. It doesn't matter whose mouth it comes out of. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, And I I, want to suggest additional context as well. You have Mm -hmm. high expectations Right. So on the one hand, the idea that all ideas are equal and everyone can be equal in a room is true. However, the team's goal is to get to a novel, exciting, captivating, scary idea. Is that right?
1: It has to be epic. If you look, every wall in our office says do epic shit. We will not leave that room if it's not epic. Like it's, it, it has to be epic, what, what our version of epic is. And that's usually scary. We haven't done it before. We have no idea how this is going to go. But my gosh, do we all feel super excited about
0: it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's such important context because there are people who probably get paid to come up with ideas who don't like the idea that ideas can come from anywhere and from anyone and believe it leads to mediocrity, which it can, but not when it exists in a culture of high, clear expectations. That's what I feel.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, people know that you've got to bring it. That's another thing is where we don't play small, you know, for a company our size, we play really big and we play bold. And that's what we pride ourselves on. So we also know, you know, no one's gonna pitch an idea that we've already done before, or that is below something that we've done, because we have as a culture that we're only going to grow and we're only going to do better. So that's in our DNA.
0: Is there a time that you have played small and then regretted it?
1: Oh, so much have I played small. You know, usually when I, honestly, when I bring an outside consultant in and, you know, I I just hired a new president and I wanted to do a campaign and, Anyway, and she was like, Oh, you can't do that, you're gonna hurt the brand. And you know, I got a little scared, and everybody got scared. And uh, anyway, we didn't end up doing a campaign, we did a watered down version of the campaign, and it didn't quite work. And that happens all the time, so it's not perfect, and we're not perfect. But what happens is, whenever we make a mistake like that, we don't sit around and beat ourselves up, we kind of go. Yeah, we know where we went wrong there. Okay, what can we do right this time? Okay, you know what? We're only going to go with inspired ideas, epic shit. Let's get back to our our foundation, our core. So you are going to slip off. The wonderful thing about a creative agency, Mark, that I'm so passionate about is there's a resiliency built in. Whenever you have this creativity and flexibility, there's an aliveness where you can make some of those mistakes and it's okay.
0: Mm -hmm how you're, you're kind of involved with so much of the creative production and and output. You're involved with the business. You're involved with the creative and campaign ideas, the product ideas, as well as sometimes down to the level of the script or words that appear in public. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, and I act as the CCO of of the companies. Um, I'm involved in every piece of creativity. It's, it's what turns me on. It's, it's our livelihood. It's, it's my lifeblood. So those are the meetings that are fun for me. So I'm involved in a lot, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, people also know once it comes to me now, I, I get a lot of ideas that are, that are brought to me that are the level that I would have done because, you know, so many people around me have learned the same process and they do it on their own in little huddles and they bring it. And that's still fun for me too, but I am involved in most everything.
0: But that level of commitment to yourself and who you are and to do that through your business, that's not something that arrives to people easily. And some people feel it, they can smell it, and they can never quite get there. How, how did you get to that point in life where you are clear about who you are and how you want to spend your days and how that's going to happen through your own business?
1: Mm. Well, you know, Mark, I don't know if most people here know a lot of my story, but I filed my second bankruptcy when I was 38. And then I went on a spiritual sabbatical for about four years before the idea for Poopery came to me. I call it an alive idea. This idea was so compelling to me. I was like, wow, can I make this happen? I really wasn't looking to be in a business. And I say often that I had the luxury of losing everything, and that's really true because what I realized is the way I'd done business in the past where I held back, I didn't stand up, I sold out, I pushed through, all that shit didn't matter when I lost everything, right? It's like I often say, you know, what what feels worse when you lose everything? It's like losing everything and realizing you didn't have a good time. So, so coming back into business, I had the luxury of going, I'm just going to do what I like and what turns me on. So the first person I hired was a bookkeeper. It's like, I hate bookkeeping. I don't want to do that. So I started hiring out everything that I didn't like doing. So that has always naturally kept me mostly as the creative lead in the company. By just hiring out around me um, because I just didn't want it's, to it's not worth it to me when you can lose everything if I'm not I will never lose everything and not said I've had a great time that will never happen to me I may lose everything sometime I can't control that but what I can control is what I'm doing in the process mm-hmm. and that's the reason I want to you know do only what makes me happy and what turns me on creativity turns me on being in creative endeavors and ex- explorations and creating products like that, that turns. Me on. Um, and also, I've done a lot of personal work, as you know. I've been through lots of journeys and uh, really finding out who I am and finding out who. I, at the core was when I was four years old. my mentor says, "Our genius, we find it out we really know' what, between four and six years old. What were we doing at four and six and I was creating that 's what I was doing. I was creating a building i wasn 't going through spreadsheets and doing you know all these things that i don 't like doing. so my life has been how can I get back to that four to six year old always
0: and, and so, as someone who has created a lot and who has put out a lot into the world, what do you allow?" into yourself into your mind do do you read do you watch movies
1: yeah i haven't watched tv in about 15 years um so i i might even be 20 by now it's been a long time And um, what I realized is there was just so much negativity in like just even TV shows and news and violence. And I'm a sensitive person. So I make sure that I keep my world really free of things like that. I will not go see a violent movie, a scary movie. Like it just won't happen. I'll go to, I'll probably see 10 movies a year, maybe one a month, whether at home. Um, But I generally spend a lot of time meditating. I, I told you earlier, I've been meditating a lot lately. I spend a lot of time connecting with my friends a lot of alone time. Because I am in such a creative space during the day, I really use a lot of energy. So in my evenings and my weekends, I like for it to be pretty chill and select people. I don't have anybody in my life that's toxic or negative, zero. I, I just don't have room for that energetic room.
0: Are they boundaries that you learned to, well, first of all, learned to have as boundaries? What had to happen for you to realize that these were important boundaries to maintain?
1: I was just realizing, at the end of my life, would I have wanted to spend time with this person. I don't feel good around this person. What am I doing? why am I honoring this person's wishes over my own? So I started really looking at a lot of those things. And I don't really like the word boundary. It's more personal choice. You know, do you like vanilla ice cream or chocolate? You know, I, I particularly like chocolate and I love nuts in it, right? It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the vanilla ice cream. It's just not my choice today. And that's the way I choose people around me. It's, it's you know, I'm not going to be rude and say, you're out of my life. I'm doing a firm boundary. It's just, I'm just not going to spend time with you or if you want to keep wanting to spend time with me and you keep asking me then i'm probably gonna tell you the truth i'll say i really don't enjoy i don't feel good being around you you know i feel like you talk a lot about negative things and it just doesn't turn me on
0: so in some respects your daily philosophy and the questions you ask yourself day to day are: how do i want to spend my time now where where am i going to come alive and let's do that is it any more complicated than that
1: no it is not more complicated than that at all i want my life more simple And yeah, I'm looking at simplifying so that I can really create impact. I notice when my life is simple, I'm more clear headed and I can create more impact in the world and impact in my own lives and impact in other people's lives.
0: I feel that I know a lot of people who yearn for simplicity, but maybe they, maybe they're just used to, or even addicted to complexity because it gives them this noise and that noise does a couple of things. One is the noise can distract them. And the other is it, it gives them. A reason to not listen to themselves and what they want to do. Did you have a part of your life that was way too noisy that you're now able to refer to as not what you want, so that you can do the complete opposite and focus on what you want? Or is this did you arrive at, at this way of being very differently?
1: Yeah, you know, first of all, I think the complexity starts in our minds. I think the stronger our minds are, the more complex that we can be. That's the reason I really practice Mindfulness and meditation to realize there is a voice in my head. I oh my gosh, I'm reading a great book right now. I don't know if you've read the Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. He's the guy that wrote the Untethered Soul. You know one of the famous kind of spiritual books. But what I really enjoyed about it is it reminded me again um, of the narrator in my in my head, we all have that narrator that has an opinion. Most of us don't even notice that it's there, (laughs) but there's always this voice going on inside of our minds. The more power we give that voice and we give that voice power by not practicing mindfulness and not meditating and actually focusing and toning that voice down, you know? So what happens is it becomes like a jungle in there, right? In your mind, (laughs) like everything, like, trust me, I'm a creative, like this shit can get crazy really fast in there. So what I do is I really practice like a monk, like focus and meditation. You know, if I'm in a meeting, it's a stressful meeting. I'm going down to my belly breath and I'm, I'm doing like a moo, you know, like, like a mantra. I'm just saying a mantra over and over to basically, because it's really easy for my mind to start really Creating lots of scenarios about what's happening instead of me tuning into my body. So it's really about focus. There's a great guy, Pani Dandi. He's this monk and he talks about focus. He says, We're told as children to focus, but nobody teaches us how to focus.
0: Yeah, I feel like I understand some of these themes better in the past couple of years and definitely since I've, uh, I met you than when I was younger because. Often, I I, I think I grew up where I had to use my brain a lot and to be smart was was kind of all I really knew. Uh, And it's not that I was smart, but the idea that I had to be smart was a useful idea, but also maybe not a great idea. Increasingly, the idea of mindfulness and trying to be a little bit more in in the body rather than the head all the time. I I understand this stuff a little bit better and it kind of blows me away (laughs) that it took almost 40 years for these things to arrive. I don't know. It's weird.
1: Yeah, it it's weird, but also, you know, like my daughter, she's uh 24 and she's, you know, been on this journey with me for the past 15 years. Um so most of her life and she's very mindful. You know, she's extremely mindful. So I think it's just our parents you know, we were very uh, disconnected society, especially, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, 90s, and we're just now realizing about connection and mindfulness. Here's the amazing thing about if you had to increase capacity of one side of your of your brain, I would say go for the right side because everything you need in the left left side can either be, you can hire left brain all day long and you can find anything you want to know in this box sitting right in front of you. (laughs) But creativity, that's the reason it's so valuable is because it's so under exercised Mm. in our society. Actually, I believe that creativity is going to be the next riches that we need because we have so much data and so much information what are we going to do you have to have creativity you know what i'm saying that's going to come in and that's going to be the most valuable resource i believe
0: yeah I, I totally believe that and support it and kind of have to have to believe it in some respects but and it's, it's interesting because there are people like edward de Bono who've Been pushing this idea for probably 50 years now, and trying to get creativity into school curriculums—not just art, but like a deeper sense of art and and lateral thinking. And I just—I don't know if it's happening, but fingers crossed that it will. What you know, you mentioned growing up in Arkansas and you live in Texas. Do you have any observations of the attitudes towards creativity in that part of the world for people who've never been there? What 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 is it like to be a creative spirit in that part of the world?
1: (laughs) It's like you're a unicorn. Yeah, I, you know, I see creativity starting in Dallas, you know, it's it's becoming actually a pretty cool city. Um, it's taken, you know, for the past 40 years of me being a creative, it's been a pretty lonely journey. Um, and it's one that's only um, increased within my being, you know, uh, I've just gotten stronger with it. But it's, really not the norm. Everybody that comes into our office, number, the, most people will tell you when they work here that they grew as a person. I'm not as interested in people's like careers. You know, we do epic shit. They're going to get notches on their resume. That's going to be it. But I really want to talk about personal development. We have a lot of mindfulness classes. We talk about creativity as a, as a super skill. Um, so I believe that I can affect people. I can do this. I can talk to podcasts into the world about being a creative individual and how you can actually be successful being creative. And that's about all I can do. But it's a pretty, it's not very, yeah, I wouldn't say generally that the MO around here is creativity. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) It's
1: very uh, conservative.
0: (laughs) Okay. And I I know you said, I know you said that you're not that interested in history, but do you have a sense of why that's the case?
1: I think it's just conditioning, you know, being so super conservative and conditioned and here's the way you do things and not having enough rebels or trusting the rebels enough that have broke the system. You know, for some reason in California, you know, in the 70s, everybody moved out to California, you know, or up to New York. You know, most artists kind of move away to either coast where it seems to be a lot more liberal. And there haven't been a lot of people that have stayed here to try to break up some old scar tissue um and that's what i've been doing i've been staying here and i have been breaking up old scar tissue and the the more successful i become the more i'm gaining strength even in my own preaching of creativity does that make sense Mm -hmm. so that i can so i can therefore affect other people here and it's amazing how many people don't think they're creative if we took a poll, I bet you 90, 90% of people do not think they're creative. And it's just crazy.
0: Yeah, I, I often ask groups of people that. And then well, it's just there's so much baggage with the word. And people don't always have a clear definition of it. But I, I kind of believe creativity is innate to humans as, like, in positive and not positive ways. So destruction is also innate to humans.
1: I think it's absolutely innate. I had a guy and he said, well, I, what if I'm not, you know, I'm not creative? And I said, okay. I said, will you do a little exercise with me? He said, yeah. And I said, what do you want for dinner tonight? He's like, well, I don't know. I said, think about it. What do you, seriously? Like, we're gonna go out to dinner later. What do you want? Tell me about it. And what would you love for dinner tonight? And he said, you know, I'd really love a roasted chicken and mashed potatoes, and then I'd love corn on the side. And I said, right there. And he goes, what? Well, I go, right there. You're creative. You just imagine that meal in your mind. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like that right there is creativity. <laughs> mm. Keep doing more of that.
0: <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about how pooperys Girls Don't Poop came to your mind and your team's mind. Tell us about that experience.
1: Yeah. So I was in an ayahuasca ceremony and um, I was doing the ceremony. uh, Anybody that's journeyed in these um, shamanic medicine journeys, you don't particularly get to choose. I've never been able to choose what's going to come up. So what was coming up was shame. And I went through several levels of shame, you know, societal shame, just shame in our civilization, shame of being a woman, sexual shame, body shame, went all the way down to conception, you know, that my mother and dad had, um, they were 18 years old when they got pregnant and they're in conservative Christian town in Arkansas. You can imagine the shame that they must have felt. My mother didn't breastfeed me. So there, I felt ashamed, you know, there's just, I just got to see all this shame and it was like such freedom. And then all of a sudden I, uh, oh wait, are we talking about girls don't poop or girls do poop? Because I just did a campaign called girls don't poop. I mean, girls do poop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about the original, uh, the the first one, girls don't Oh,
1: poop. the original. Okay. Well, okay. Then you can,
0: but you can, you can talk uh, about girls do poop.
1: Yeah. So anyway, after this, what happened was I heard this say, and you built a whole company around shame. And I was like, what are you talking about? And it's like, you know, stop embarrassing bathroom odor, you know, spritz the bow before you go. No one else will ever know. And what I realized, Mark, is on a very subtle level, we've been still selling shame. So we came out with a new campaign called Girls Do Poop, and it's girls telling their poop stories. It wasn't executed 100% the way we wanted to, but, yeah, I felt a little bit. I was excited about that story, I guess. But we do things like that in the company. That's a risk, right? It's like, hold on. We had an original video, Girls Don't Poop, that came out. Now we're going back and saying, hold on, girls do poop. Doesn't that seem like your contradiction? To, you know, the entire world. And it's like, well, we have new information five years from now. You know what? We didn't even realize that making fun of embarrassing bathroom odor is still selling that it's embarrassing. So we've shifted a lot of our perspective of that.
0: When you have an ayahuasca journey like that, that reveals something to you that you, that you think you can use in your work, how do you how do you bring that to the office?
1: Well, just like that. I came back on Tuesday morning and I pulled our creative team and marketing team together and I said, "Here's what just happened." And everybody's mouth dropped open and they were like, "We feel the truth in that." And I said, "So what are we going to do?" And they're like, "Well, we're going to shift it. We're going to change it. We're going to look at the way we're talking. What are we putting out there?" So really, we've been doing a deep dive in our company about what what are we saying as a company what's our responsibility What are our messages so you'll see lots of new stuff coming from us in the future based mm-hmm. on that but mm-hmm. it's a very open transparent conversation and they can do with it what we want i don't have a um i always say we're a democracy here you know everything's equal and we all we all vote kind of do we want to move forward with this is this something you feel as a brand that we need to pay attention to and everybody hands down said yes which was radical
0: And then with the videos that you create, do you do do anything in the way of pre testing? Do you talk to people about them, get people to look at them and give you feedback or post uh, post them online for a handful of people to see, see what works and mend them? Or do you go full in?
1: It depends. Mostly we do a lot of testing. The wonderful thing about being online, we use a model called the reverse funnel method that you can look up for direct to consumer marketing. Um, it's for a conversion video model, but I think you could use that model for anything. But basically we will film, you know, maybe four or five intros, we'll film the the body of the video and then we'll film several endings to the video. And then we will test multiple versions of that video and all the different combinations to to get a winner.
0: And what are, uh, obviously a lot of people are dreaming of creating some kind of DTC brand. What have you learned about the, the DTC world, the direct-to-consumer world in the past few years? Are there any general lessons that are easy to pass on?
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of money in, in direct-to-consumer unless you're rolling those that advertising and that awareness out somewhere else. People think, oh, we sell online, our margins are you know, we get the full margins. We're not selling it to a store like to a target and then they get their margins. But what happens is the amount that it costs to actually, you know, the amount of ad spend that you have to, to get to get that consumer in the first place, you're only going to make up and probably four purchases. So it's a long game and it's really a new customer acquisition and a brand awareness platform. It's not a way to make money. So it's really hard, especially competing with Amazon, Um, What i found is it's really hard to make money in a direct-to-consumer platform, Um, but if you can, you know, for example, if somebody sees one of our ads, you know, we may have a, you know, I don't know what percent conversion that we have right now, but let's just say we have a 5% conversion, which our conversions are usually really high, but what happens to the other 95% of those people, if you're not selling in a store somewhere they're going to have to happen to see you the next time online, right? Well, if you have it on the shelves in Target and CVS and Walgreens and those places, they, those 95% of the people can then go into the store and be like, oh, hold on, I just saw the ad for that. Mm-hmm. So that helps recoup some of the, the expense of being a direct to consumer brand. Five years ago, you can make a lot of money in direct to consumer, but now, you know, Google and Facebook and everybody's really smart with that and it's really expensive.
0: What what are some of the challenges of going from direct to consumer to then also adding other distribution channels that you don't control? What did you learn? What mistakes did you make?
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, so many. There's just. Uh a lot of details. The, the more channels you're in, the more complex your business. I had one of the top supply chain people in the world um, today. And um, a friend of mine, he runs a friend of mine's company. And he was just telling me that our business is complex. Can you believe that? We sell a poop spray, and he's telling us our business is complex. The reason our business is complex is because we have direct-to-consumer, we have mass retail, we have gift, we have our own Amazon, you know, that we're selling online, and then we have, you know, all of the the internet retailers like Amazon and those those things. Every one of those customers requires something different. They require different packaging, different procedures, the way you put it in. For example, just to ship to a Target you know, first of all, you have to be accepted onto the shelf. Then when you are the amount of, they literally send you a book, like a notebook full of like procedures mm-hmm. uh, to do that. And then if you do it wrong, you know, you get fined a lot of money. So it's just a different game and it's, your business can get really complex in the, the multiple channels. But again, I want complexity in my business. So when I tell you, I want things simple I do want it simple in my life, but in my business, I love to create products that are hard to duplicate. I love to create a brand that's hard to mimic. And I love to create, I love having multiple channels because it's hard for somebody to come in and do exactly what we're doing. So Mm -hmm. I will tell my team, we want it to be difficult. Because if it were that easy, everybody would be doing it.
0: Yeah, and it's it's funny because I feel like you're describing yourself. And I don't mean that in a, nos- a brown-nosing way, but uh, hard to duplicate a brand that's difficult to mimic. And I, I think what I'm trying to get to is that often when people who identify as being creative try to work out how to put themselves into the world and succeed, when they talk about their businesses, they are often talking about themselves. <laughs> Do you ever yeah. catch yourself doing that where you're <laughs> like, you, you you do catch yourself in a meeting where you're describing something about the business and you're like, Oh, I'm talking about me.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I have. I have. Sometimes when they'll do the who is like who is poopery or who is supernatural, I'll be like, That sounds a lot like me.
0: <laughs> what what uh how's Amazon changed for you in the past few years?
1: Oh my gosh. Well you used to make a lot of money on Amazon. It was great, you know, but initially, you know, they would you could sell it to them at a higher price and They've just really beaten you down. I think that it has increased, of course, distribution, but uh, they're they're more difficult to to work with. You know, their their demands, their price demands are getting um, more, and it's harder. It's harder to compete on Amazon. Actually, you know what, Mark, I will say this to the world: it's really it's it's on one hand, it's easier now to market than ever. On the other hand, it's really difficult to get through the noise and compete. There's a lot of noise, which is why we need to be more creative.
0: Tell us a bit about Supernatural.
1: It's really interesting. I call her my love child because I was just seeing if I could create this. It was just a fun project that I was doing on the side. And um, my mom died of MDS, which is caused by chemical exposure. turns into leukemia. And um, I learned that it's caused mostly by benzene and benzines and gasoline, coke can, cigarettes. So don't be smoking, people. And household chemicals, right? Mothballs and lots of cleaning supplies. You know, I've always cleaned my house like with apple cider vinegar and baking soda because I've always been more of a not more, but you know, I've leaned towards the natural products and natural things, even if I have to make it myself. But what I realized when I started looking on the shelves. I was like, most natural products really aren't even natural. They have synthetics in them. And then I started wondering, somebody came to sell me a bottle and it had twice as much plastic. It was made in Amsterdam. Uh, the number one, you know, I kind of do, you know, green cleaning line was buying this so that this bottle had twice as much plastic. It wasn't recyclable. They had to fill it in Amsterdam and ship it to the United States for an air freshener, which you're talking is 95% water. And they did it because you could spray it 360 360 degrees. And I was like, that's not acceptable. Why are we doing this? And and what are we doing? So I started started looking at concentrates and natural products. And I worked with a hippie chemist. And her and I played together on the side. And we created these amazing formulations. I knew I wanted to be concentrates because I don't want to ship water. And we have a 100% natural, lowest carbon footprint um, cleaning product that's absolutely beautiful and stunning. It's based on aromatherapy. It will literally transform your cleaning experience. You don't know it until you try it. And then you're like, wow, what happened? It's like you entered into a new dimension. Um, Yeah. So that's supernatural. That's the long story, but Mm -hmm. she's a really beautiful love child of mine. But, you know, honestly, when we talk back about creativity and launching, she's a direct to consumer brand. So when I tell you how tough it is, I have experience in this and I'm telling you it's tough, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you that to deter you. (laughs) I'm telling you that because I'm struggling. So we're actually next week bringing a think tank in, and with ourselves and uh, with a couple of experts out in the field, and we're trying to see how we can disrupt, and I hate that word, but how can we do direct-to-consumer different
0: than you right. do it right now? Are you, are you yeah. finding it hard to break through the noise that you mentioned? It's
1: not really the noise. We haven't tried to break. You know, we're, we're doing really well. You know, we've had tons of PR, and people are loving the brand. It's the, the cost to acquire an initial customer is so high that you have to go, wow, will this pay off? And I know it'll pay off with poo but Supernatural is a brand new brand and I have to look at how much do I want to invest in these customers.
0: You've mentioned a few times through, through the chat about trusting your gut and, and the role of intuition in your decisions. For someone who's not used to being allowed to trust their gut, even though they might have a loud gut, how would you coach someone into listening to themselves better?
1: I tell them, listen to your gut, but go online and pull the data that will help explain what your gut's feeling. And that way you can be like, you know, I, I had a feeling about something. So I went and did some research and here's what I found out. That's going to be a lot more accepted in a conservative. It's sort of like you're backing up what your gut says. Mm. I wasn't taught to trust my gut when I was young. Actually, we're most of us are conditioned out of it. We're conditioned from a very young age. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. There's no scary monsters. You know, you're making it all up. Uncle Bobby's fine. You know, don't worry about it. You know, go, go to that party. Nobody's going to like you. You know, we're just by the time we, you know, get to second grade, we, you know, we're zombies. <laughs> we're robots just doing what everybody tells us to do. So then all of a sudden you whip it on you. oh, but you need to trust your gut. It's like, what gut? Um, so I believe that we have to train children from a young age, or we have to tell people to start noticing those really dense feelings. Like for example, if something's really bad, you'll normally feel a big, heavy kind of thump in your belly. Like, oh boy, oh no. And if something is exciting that kind of gut then you'll kind of feel tingles you always hear people go like oh my god I have chill bumps you know some people say like feel the chills you know follow the chills those sort of things Mm. so I I usually take people from those really extremes you know if you're walking down an alley and then all of a sudden you feel a thump in your gut and you hear footsteps behind you what are you going to do and they're like what well, my radar's going off exactly that's your intuition mm-hmm. so i start teaching people about those kind of gross levels and then you can just start kind of fine tuning and once you can admit that these gross levels happen you know these really far away levels happen then you can start bringing in more and more if you have a feeling about something go research For example, we had a guy in our office, he was scamming the company. One of our employees said, Susie, she came to me, she showed me the guy had been in prison. Anyway, it was just a a disaster. Somebody forgot to do a background check. Anyway, and I said, oh my gosh, how did you know this? And she said, something didn't feel right. So I went online and I investigated. She said, you've always told us to trust our gut. I was like, yes, thank you. But that's an instance where that literally saved our company. So I think it's creating, number one, a culture. Start talking to people about it. Start saying, I, don't, I have a feeling. Something feels different. And see how people respond. Like, what are you talking about? I don't know. Something feels off. And then start looking and going, could there be something going on here that we're not looking at? We're not seeing. And I believe if you can start even within your own team, if you run a team or if you're with a boss, telling your boss, like, hey, if something doesn't feel right, would you want to know about it? It's like, Yeah. What do you mean feeling? I don't know. Sometimes I feel things. And just start some of those conversations. Mm-hmm. If you ask Richard Branson, I, I'm, I'm going to bet you money, this would be a really good book. If you want to write a book, go ask these top entrepreneurs. They are going to tell you that they operate a lot off of intuition. Most people in high places do that yeah. I've met.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I would like that to be true. It feels true to me. Uh, what, what about your philosophy around parenting? You've obviously, you've gone through a lot in life. You've created a lot. How did you reflect that in the way that you approached parenting?
1: Mm. You know, parenting is one of those things where I always say my children survived me. (laughs) The first 38 years of my life was um, pretty crazy. But the way I've approached parenting is all of my children are completely different. They're all completely individuals. So I have really supported their creative endeavors, um, no matter what it is. My older son, he's a rebel. And he was one of the first guys, you know, doing blockchain uh, meetups, because he thinks we need a new financial system. I've always supported him. He does really well now in crypto. But he's done it because he believes we need a new financial system. That's his passion is being that rebel. And I've taught him if you're going to be a rebel, be a rebel to create change for the good, right? (laughs) It's like, don't just, you know go paint somebody 's wall that 's not cool, the same thing with my um, my second son he's a he's a management major but an engineer and then my daughter's an artist but i've always talked to them about Life is short. Do what you want. Don't listen to people on the outside because at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself and that's it. You know, you don't have to answer to me. You, you are the one that's going to carry yourself in your body. So you be true to you. And I really have done that my entire life with my, with my kids. I I can't say I was a truly strict parent, but I wasn't super loose either. I tried to teach my children to do not harmful things you know like don't do anything illegal don't do anything harmful and yes express yourself as much as you can and be an individual because that's what we need more in the world we don't need more people like other people we have too many of that my kids would tell you i'm a great parent that's where i'm really hard on myself i wouldn't say i'm a parenting expert at all
0: (laughs) (laughs) i love the idea of trying to work out how to live with yourself because sometimes if your brain's a little bit busy you're the hardest person that you have to live with. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing to see how you've built a life and several businesses around it. So it's, uh, it's been wonderful to hear your stories and wisdom. How are you going to approach the rest of your life?
1: Mm. You know, I'm, I'm 54 and I, I didn't realize that until the other day. I asked this girl about her warm-up suit and she said, what? And I said, I like your warm-up suit. So then I text my millennial trainer and said, "Do you know what a warm up suit is?" She said, "No." <laughs> what do you mean a track suit? I was like, "Okay, see, there you go." I'm fifty four. Um, I thought that was hilarious. Mm-hmm. But I, I really look at—I probably have twenty more years, you know, where I can work in full kind of radiance. And what do I want to do? I spent my entire—I spent two weeks over the holidays meditating and really tuning into what do I want to do. And I can't tell you I have that figured out, but I know that it's going to be way simple and create a lot more impact than the way I've lived the last 20 years. You know, there's a few areas that my children and I are passionate about, that we um, are passionate about together, and we will be doing more things towards those those ideas and those passions. For one is birth control for women. You know, there's certain areas, plastic in the world, you know, and that sounds crazy. I, I make a product with plastic, but trust me, I, I feel the impact of that. So there are some areas that I have that are chunked off, like I will be working to help this in the world. But as far as me, it's how can I inspire people to actually break out of the shell, be more creative, take more of those risks, because life is really, really short.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about creativity as a default expectation. Creativity is who you are listening to intuition and then your last point about spending time with yourself to listen to yourself. I I think sometimes when we're younger, we're not taught that that's okay, that we have to be busy all the time. And then as we get a little bit older, we start to wonder whether we should just go for that long walk or sit there and look at a tree or whatever it is and then you start to connect with yourself but again it's something that sometimes we're actively taught it's not normal and shamed out of or we just don't see it around us and know that that's available to us
1: yeah i say never underestimate the value of just sitting and staring off into space That's where I, as a creative, I have to have space. My VP of creative, I send her, I make her take vacation, like go, get out of here, go. I don't care. Don't even touch your email, go. Because I know that that space is what kind of feeds the soil, right? To be able to come back for a creative, you need We all need that space and we don't give ourselves that because we're too focused on doing.
0: Love it, love it, love it. Susie, do you publish on the internet much as yourself? Where are you most active?
1: I'm most active on Instagram. Most every post, I have some lesson or something that, you know, that I've been putting out there. So that's been more kind of a blog for me. So if you follow Suzy Batiz on Instagram, um, you'll see a lot of the a lot of these things I'm talking about.
0: Awesome. Well, I know how busy you are and I appreciate your time and look forward to all the other wonderful things you're going to put into the world. Thank you, Suzy Batiz.
1: Mm, thank you so much, Mark. It was <laughs> awesome chatting with
0: you. You too. Peace.